0: Welcome to The Making of the Islamic World. I'm Chris Grayton. If you're hearing this through the Ottoman History Podcast website, The Making of the Islamic World is a series of podcasts intended for the university classroom. With each episode, we provide a bibliography of readings associated with the topic, as well as other readings and activities great for group discussion or for simply exploring on your own. In the first installment of the series, we talked about the foundations of Islamic law and how scholars are revisiting the early history of Islam to address questions of concern for Muslims today. In this episode, we're going to learn about the political foundations of early Islamic polities, the emergence of Muslim political dynasties, and what we'll be calling the imperial caliphates, the Umayyad dynasty and the Abbasid dynasty that overthrew and replaced it. We're also going to explore the intellectual and cultural life of the Abbasid Caliphate at its height, and we'll consider what the work of a unique 9th century scholar tells us about Abbasid society and transformation. The story of the Imperial Caliphates begins with the death of the Prophet Muhammad in 632 CE. In a span of 10 years, the Muslim armies had united the Arabian Peninsula under a single political authority and were on the cusp of an even greater expansion. The position of caliph emerged out of attempts by the early Muslim community to resolve the question of leadership and succession. Hugh Kennedy, a professor at SOAS University of London, spoke to Ottoman History Podcast about the history of the idea of the caliphate, which though changing greatly over the centuries, has always concerned the issue of political authority in Islam.
1: I think the the idea of the office of Caliphate of the Caliphate is an immediate response by the Muslim community to the extraordinary position that the Muslims found themselves in at the time of death of Prophet Muhammad, because at least according to uh, Sunni opinion, Prophet Muhammad left no designated successor or heir. And this meant that th- there were two immediate questions that confronted the Muslim community at this stage. Firstly, was there going to be a leader and what powers would that leader have? And secondly, who would that leader be? And according to the uh, traditional accounts, and we've got no reason really to disbelieve them, all this was decided very quickly when Prophet Muhammad died. And the uh, leadership was taken by a small group of Qurayshi, Uh, Muslims, that is Muslims from Mecca, who had come to settle in Medina at the time of the great Hijrah in 62. And they took the initiative here and they appointed one of them, chose one of their number, Abu Bakr, who was an old man by this stage and had worked with the prophet Muhammad for uh, many years, uh, as their new leader and, They seem to have given him two titles, though the early evidence for these titles is is a bit slender. One of them was Khalifa, Caliph in English. Now, Caliph is an ambiguous word. It either means a deputy, somebody who substitutes for somebody else, or it means a successor. And this gave rise to a lot of uncertainty uh, when trying to work out what the office of, of, of caliph meant. Now, Prophet Muhammad, all Muslims agree, was the last of the prophets. The new caliph to be a successor of Muhammad couldn't be another prophet. The new caliph had to be successor of uh, Prophet Muhammad in, as it were, the secular aspects or the, uh, of his uh, work. Secular aspects of his leadership, commanding armies, organizing taxation, that sort of thing. Uh, uh, things that a, a new community demanded. And that much was clear. But there's an ambiguity about, for example, should the Khalifa have the power to, or the authority to interpret Quran, those difficult and mysterious bits of Quran that Muslims have discussed for centuries and centuries um, and still remain in many cases ambiguous. Should the Khalifa have the power to decide what Islamic law, or what became known as Sharia, what Sharia was, or not, or should this be left to other people?
0: The first four caliphs in Islam, known as the Rightly Guided Caliphs, or Rashidun, presided over Islam's political expansion into Byzantine and Sasanian lands. In about three decades, they claimed a swath of territory that stretched from North Africa and Egypt in the west to Iran and Central Asia in the east. During those years, succession happened as it did following the death of the Prophet Muhammad, but the question of succession spurred intense controversy.
1: The first four caliphs, Abu Bakr, Omar ibn al-Khattab, Uthman ibn Affan, and Ali ibn Abi Talib, are in a sense the people who in different ways define the office for future generations. Where you stand on the first four caliphs defines your position on the uh, Sunni-Shii divide. For the majority of the Sunni community, the first four caliphs are the incomparable exemplars of what a ruler should be. For the Shi'a, the first three caliphs are essentially the people who deprived Ali ibn Abi Talib of his true inheritance as the successor of Prophet Muhammad. So very different views about this. But there is, uh, well... Abu Bakr and Umar command the respect even among the Shia population of most of the case. The third caliph, Uthman, from 644 to 656, is a much more controversial character because Uthman uh, was murdered by insurgents from the Muslims of Iraq and Egypt. And where you stand on the murder of Uthman is uh, a major dividing point among are Muslims.
0: The question of who should be Caliph had no objective answer. Some advocated that the immediate family of the Prophet, in particular the Prophet's daughter Fatima's husband, Ali ibn Abi Talib, should retain the position. But after the brief Caliphate of Abu Bakr, Omar ibn al-Khattab assumed the position of Caliph as Abu Bakr's appointed successor. The Muslim territories expanded rapidly during Omar's reign, stretching deep into Persia and the heart of the Sasanian Empire. A former Sasanian soldier captured and enslaved by the Muslim armies would bring Omar's reign to a sudden end, attacking him while he was leading prayer at the Medina Mosque and inflicting ultimately fatal stab wounds. Omar had appointed a committee to choose the next caliph in the event of his death. Ali ibn Abi Talib was on the committee, along with another early companion of the Prophet, Uthman ibn Affan, a member of the Banu Umayyah clan. Both of those men would end up as caliph, first Uthman, then Ali. In the end, Uthman's clan, the Banu Umayyah, would win out. Here's University of Virginia professor Josh White.
2: The first dynasty in Islam is really a product of fights over spoils. Right, in the span of just a few decades, the armies of the Muslims you know, burst forth from Arabia and conquered vast territories And vast amounts of wealth were shipped back to Medina to then be distributed to the Arab soldiers and their families. The big fight becomes who is actually entitled to these revenues. And as the Islamic polity grows larger, how should it be administered? It is not easy to do this from Medina. When we get to the third caliph and recognize that Transitions from the first caliph to the second, from second to third, and the third to the fourth. Each are different. Um, Uthman, our third caliph, had required the forwarding of provincial revenues from Egypt to Medina. The Arabs in Egypt thought that those revenues should stay with them. So we already have disc- intent quite early on. One of the other things that Uthman had done uh, was appointed people from his clan to all sorts of roles within the state. Nepotism is hardly something that the Arabs invented, but Uthman has more time than his predecessors had to ensure that more of his friends and family have good jobs. His family are the Banu Umayya. Among those people, Sir Kinsman Muawiyah, who he appoints the governor in Syria with his seat at Damascus. So when Uthman is assassinated in 656, by assassins who are discontented with how revenue sharing is working, uh, we have a battle over who should take control. And this time it's Ali's turn, um, but this is not undisputed. And the result is the first fitna, really the first kind of civil war amongst the Muslims. And this leads to multiple splits on the one hand, between the supporters of Ali and the supporters of Muawiyah, and then those who basically say a pox on both their houses, these are the folks that we know as the Kharijites. The long and the short of it is, Uthman may have died, but he still won, because Muawiyah based in Damascus, which is closer to the front lines of empire, closer to the sources of wealth, closer to the old sources of knowledge from Byzantine times, from or you say Roman times is ultimately better prepared to follow. And so when Ali is himself assassinated just a few years later, Muawiyah is well positioned to seize power. And so he does. And Muawiyah becomes our kind of first caliph of the Umayyad dynasty. Lest we think that everybody at that point were resigned to the idea that dynastic rule should be the rule going forward, that is certainly not true. Muawiya spent much of the succeeding years, trying to get everybody on board with the idea that his son Yazid would succeed him. And when Muawiyah died, people said, screw that guy. And it didn't work out super well. Uh, We get another nasty civil war, which ultimately results in the cataclysmic murder of Ali San Hussein a few years later of the death of Yazid by natural causes, and a massive power vacuum. Nevertheless, Eventually, another claimant from within the Umayyad family is able to emerge victorious after a whole bunch of battles and back and forth and attempts of the Medinan Old Guard to seize power. And Damascus remains the seat of things for another 70 years. But this remains contentious and continues to be. The matter of really who should have authority is never resolved by the Umayyads or by their successors, the Abbasids. Constantly, the Umayyads will deal with something like a legitimacy gap, you could say. But from Syria, they nevertheless uh, governed the empire for a time. And after the end of the Second Fitna, continued to expand the empire's borders dramatically. So that by the end of the uh, Umayyads rule, uh, the empire stretched from the borders of China to Iberia, uh, one of the largest land empires probably ever seen. So, I mean, the Umayyads are really responsible for overseeing the transition from the tribal politics of Muhammad's era to those of a new uh, and self-confident empire. So on the one hand, during the early decades of expansion, continuing into the Umayyads uh, era, you still have a situation in which soldiers receive a stipend based on the proceeds from conquest. They continue to live in garrison cities established outside the pre-existing population centers, and the Arabs, most of whom are Muslim, are living apart from the natives and living off the natives tax revenues over the years, this changes for one thing. The original generation of conquerors dies. And of course their descendants would like to continue to receive payment for the, the deeds done by their forefathers. But in time, this leads to discontent. Furthermore, among the things that, that develops, uh, are converts, so, whereas the, the, the Umayyad polity, just like the Khalifa the reigns before it, was initially a kind of state with a religion for Arabs, by Arabs, uh, the appeal of the new faith and the promise potentially of, of, of getting out of certain tax uh, requirements makes the new faith extremely attractive to many people. The Umayyads, at least initially, for those first few decades, uh, strongly discourage conversion. And those who do convert to Islam are are um, treated as second-class Muslims. That is not a sustainable situation, though. One of the things that will ultimately bring the Umayyads down is, on the one hand, the, the, the vast size of their polity makes it very difficult to govern. And on the other, that the growing numbers of converts and the descendants of of products of marriages between Arabs and local people on the frontiers of empire leads to a whole class of Muslims who believe that all Muslims should be equal and are not particularly interested in the course of Arab tribal politics. They want to see uh, governance by the most pious and they want to be a full piece of that enterprise. One of the big things also that the Umayyads oversee is the absorption of kind of local knowledge and local practice, and then gradually the refashioning of it in their own image. So, initially, the Umayyad Caliphate maintains coinage that mirrors that in circulation by the preceding empires. In the Sasanian, former Sasanian domains, we see coinage that looks identical to Sasanian coinage. We see coinage likewise. It looks very similar to that of the preceding Roman coinage. The Sasanian coinage of Muawiyah, sorry, the, 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 the Umayyad coinage of Muawiyah, the first Umayyad caliph, looks precisely like that of its, of their predecessors. It's got a Zoroastrian fire temple on the back. Muawiyah is only distinguished by the fact that he's got a beard from a Sasanian shahanshah. Why does it look the same? Because the people making their coins were the people who were making the coins for the Sasanians. The people who were running the government, writing the letters, were the people who did it for them before, for their predecessors. They were just hired. They're kept on. No problem. Within some number of years, however, this changes. The images disappear. We get coins that only have text on them. And that text contains a direct challenge to the Christians by mocking the polytheists. They still are relying on clerks and bureaucrats who are in some instances, many instances, non-Muslims, people from the domains that they've conquered. But they begin to do their work in Arabic Um, and that much of the kind of early work in Arabic grammar and in literature is, is a product of these people who do not have an Arab background, but nevertheless master this language and develop the vocabulary necessary to run an empire, which is very different from, from that which they would have encountered amongst the Bedouin. So it's under the Umayyads really that many of the kind of standard positions and institutions that we talk about in coinage, in tax collection, in the treatment of Muslims develop over all these years. As do many of the architectural institutions that will inspire later generations like the Dome of the Rock and the Umayyad Mosque in Damascus.
1: And they provided a model of the caliphate which was very much a, a ruler, a very much a monarchical uh, model of the caliphs. Succession within the family, uh, the, uh, the rulers, the caliph's name on the coins, the caliph's name on monumental inscriptions, one of which still survives in the Dome of the Rock, but other places as well. Uh, the caliph as decider of legal cases uh, the caliph as, not, if not in person, leader of the armies, or uh, well, at least the person who appointed the leader of the armies, the, the, um, the caliph as the leader of the Muslims against the Byzantines, the caliph who were assured the safe passage of Hajj to uh, uh, Mecca and Medina. But the Umayyads in a way never, over, never got over this legitimacy deficit. Now, the Umayyads were an interesting family. They came from the aristocracy of Mecca. But the key point for understanding, I think, the Umayyad dilemma was that they were politically very powerful because they controlled Syria and the resources of Syria. But they were on weak ground because, as a family, they had opposed Prophet Muhammad and his mission through most of his life. Or most of them had, not all of them. And this meant that when they seized power, there were many in the Muslim community who felt that they were, in a sense, illegitimate. Here were the enemies of the Prophet who had taken over the Prophet's own Ummah, the Prophet's own community.
0: The Umayyads created a dynastic framework for caliphal succession. And they briefly presided over one of the largest empires history had ever seen to that point. So what would become of it?
2: I mean, they completely blow it. They ultimately get bogged down in tribal politics and don't pay attention to their frontiers. They do stage multiple sieges of Constantinople. They get close, but no cigar. The thing that basically sows the seeds of um, the Umayyad's destruction is itself kind of an interesting story. And it's uh, the dispatch of some tens of thousands of Arab soldiers to garrison Merv on the farthest... Reaches of the empire in Central Asia. Uh, if you send tens of thousands of single men out into the world and tell them to just kind of keep watch on the frontiers, they will do that. But they will also look to get married, and that will result in children. And it is those children who ultimately will bring down the empire that they had served and replace it with another. And it is they and uh, Khurasani Muslims converts locally who together will raise the black banners in the east and then tear through, in the span of just a year, the entire Umayyads racing to Damascus and overthrow
1: it in what turns out to be the greatest bait-and-switch probably in history. In the year 750s, there's this big revolution, and the family of the Abbasids overthrow the Umayyads with support basically from people of Iraq and people of Muslims, that is, of, of Iraq and the Muslims of Iran, Uh, The Abbasids come to, as it were, restore a true Islamic rule. The great strength of the Abbasids in ideological terms was that they could be considered as the family of the prophet. But they too suffered a legitimacy deficit in the sense that they were of the family of the prophet, but they were descendants of the prophet's uncle, Abbas, hence the name his paternal uncle, Abbas, but not of the prophet himself. And uh, the, the descent of the prophet himself passed through the prophet's two grandsons, Hassan and Hussein, and for many Muslims uh, still, the Abbasids were not really members of the family, or not really direct descendants of Prophet Muhammad. And they constantly had to counter this.
0: The Abbasids inherited the empire of the Umayyads, as well as some of the Umayyads' problems of dynastic legitimacy. But unlike the Umayyads, they survived long enough to build a mature imperial state that would define what it meant to be a powerful Islamic polity.
1: The Abbasid Caliphate in its first half century, or its first century really, was an immensely powerful organization. It depended, like the Umayyads had done before them, on the collection of regular taxes and the payment of a regular army. It became very much a, an imperial caliphate, if you like, comparable in lots of ways with the Roman Emperor, the Empire that had preceded it.
0: The wealth of the Abbasids would come to depend less on direct military expansion and much more on the organization of the state, which at its height was incredibly rich. The Sasanian lands the Abbasids conquered were known for their agricultural production and the sophistication of agricultural methods, especially irrigation. Tapping into the agricultural productivity of these lands would prove crucial to maintaining a large tax base. Here's UVA professor Fahd Bishara.
3: I mean, one of the things about the Abbasids is, at, at the same time that the the sort of the Abbasid Caliphate is coming into being, is maturing, let's say, uh, in the ninth century, the you you also have the consolidation of political authority in like a totally different part of the world. This is the Tang Dynasty in China is cohering in the ninth century as well, and these these two um, these two dynasties uh, sort of form counterparts to one another in some respects and are actually connected. There's a movement of Muslim merchants from Iraq to China at this point in time, and this is the moment in which sort of Indian Ocean trade really begins to take off in, in important ways. I mean, there was Indian Ocean trade. There was trade with India, of course, prior to that. And the Umayyads were in Sindh. Uh, and Sindh is, you know, like the granary of the East. But uh, the sort of the trade in luxury items and like exotic goods really, really takes off under the, under the Abbasids uh, in part because of the sort of community of Muslim merchants in China who are sort of moving back and forth between Baghdad and uh, and what's today Guangzhou, uh, Zetun they called it then. But as you said, the sort of the basis of wealth in these empires at this point in time is uh, is actually sort of agrarian wealth, right? Like, and and part of part of what. The, what the Abbasids are able to do is they they inherit a lot of the work that the the Umayyads had actually put into the empire, like the infrastructure, and this is this is a big part of it. Um, you know the the Umayyads had uh, had developed things like uh, you know, postal system. They built bridges and canals, They dug canals. They did all sorts of things um, that would sort of facilitate the circulation of goods and information within the empire, and the Abbasids. Inherit a lot of this, but then invest even more, uh, even more into it. And it's under the Abbasids um, that we see the first treatises. Which is not to say that there were no treatises on it before, but this is the first time we see them. And uh, when we see the first treatises on land tenure uh, and taxation, and and for me, this is really like the key to understanding a lot of this. It's one thing to have the infrastructure by which, uh, you know, goods can move. And actually, another thing the Abbasids do is they invest a lot of money in scholarship. You know, they develop libraries, they invest in scholars, and uh, this, is, this is a sort of well-known uh, aspect uh, of what makes it a, a sort of golden age, is the investment in, in sort of the academy And then you have these scholars who are traveling around and who are writing these uh, compendia of different sort of botanical goods around, or botanical, I suppose they're like botanical compendia of the Islamic world. They're writing about different plants and their different uses, and this information on different crops and different plants and their uses are circulating around this Islamic world uh, at this point in time. Um, which makes and, and that circulation makes that information more accessible, makes it easier for somebody to say plant new crops in a new place. But none of that uh, none of that matters if you don't have a good land tenure regime, a land sort of taxation regime under the Abbasids. Is when we see the um, uh, the authorship of the uh, Kitab al kharaj which is like one of the first major treatises on taxation in the Islamic world. Insofar as we know, it's probably the first major treatise on taxation in the Islamic world by um, uh, the Qadi Abu Yusuf, who is a, uh, a Abbasid, Abbasid judge, one of the major judges in the Abbasid Caliphate, and uh, a person who is one of the sort of leading thinkers in the Hanafi school of jurisprudence. So he, he writes up this treatise, Kitab al-Kharaj, in which he thinks about all of the different lands in the Islamic world, and he thinks about sort of the classification of the different lands in the Islamic world, whether it's taxed, how much it's taxed, and how, uh, you know, what the rate of taxation is, if we're going to take like a really like functional approach to reading these sorts of things. Uh, this sets a particular incentive framework, right? Uh, how much your land is going to be taxed. Uh, tells you, you know, how much work you want to put into it, right? Like if if your land is just going to be like taxed to hell, then there's really no incentive for you to sit and work the land. So they try to work out a system of taxation, of sort of graded taxes to keep people working on the land. And more than that, uh, you know, Abu Yusuf in the Kitab al-Kharaj enshrines uh, what they call the uh, mawat rule, which is the rule that if you... Clear a piece of land, or if you revive if you revive dead land, you get title to it. You establish a property right in it. So if there's there's a plot of land that's been lying fallow, and you go and you clear it and you you turned it into you know a farm, um, then that becomes yours, whether or not you bought it. Alternatively, if you have this sort of massive uh, tract of property, and you do nothing with it, and then it goes fallow. Uh, after a period of three years, you lose title to that land, and somebody else can come and take it. And so, by establishing this property rights framework, establishing the ways in which people can establish a right in property, right, and they the Abbasids really incentivize uh, agrarian production, right, and and we have to understand the circulation of crops. Uh, and information about crops in the Islamic world, which you know people have called the sort of the agricultural revolution. Um, we have to understand it as, as unfolding alongside a, a land tenure regime that is specifically
0: aimed at incentivizing particular forms of, of agrarian activity. The agricultural revolution would prove to be much more than merely a quantitative transformation of agrarian production. In a future episode on Muslim rule in Iberia, We'll return to the question of the Arab agricultural revolution and how it shaped the modern world. But for the Abbasids, the more immediate impetus to develop a systematized approach to land policy was financial.
3: The bottom line for the Abbasids is, of course, revenue. Like a lot of this is just based on, like, you know, the, the, what they what they're trying to figure out is how much can they tax these properties. Uh, and how can they generate revenue for the state? Which you know, one can then say, well, they're going, what are they going to do with that revenue? A lot of it is, you know, okay, maybe there are military campaigns, maybe there are like nice palaces, but even those forms of consumption stimulate production in different places. You know, the 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 scholar, the 14th century scholar Ibn Khaldun says, towns, cities, is where all wealth is is generated. This is you know the this is where you have like the highest numbers of crafts. Uh, these are where you have like a, a, a diversity in different sorts of production, and a lot of it is is aimed at sort of feeding the demand, uh, the consumer demand of this political uh, this political elite, and so you know they're they're taking these things and maybe they're spending it in uh, what we would call sort of uh, frivolous ways or in forms of they're engaging in forms of conspicuous consumption. Um, But at the same time, they're also taking that money and they're investing, they're reinvesting in the infrastructure of the empire itself. So, I mean, for, for Abu Yusuf, the bottom line is, you know, how much are we able to tax? How much revenue can I generate for you, the caliph? But once you sort of peel back the layers of that treatise, what you see is a very textured understanding of sort of property rights and land and the ways in which one designs a taxation regime to keep uh, cultivators on the land and to keep cultivators engaged in cultivating the land. And this isn't something that is unique to the Muslims or you know unique to the Abbasids. this is you know the Abbasids might be the earliest example that we have of this in the Islamic world. you know uh, I'm, I'm sure we would see you know uh, similar sorts of treatises in say like Roman law. but uh, and then of course later on, for subsequent, uh, subsequent caliphates, subsequent empires, this is a, a sort of a major concern. And we have, of course, tons of documentation of this for the Ottomans who are, who are deeply concerned about questions of, sort of land tenure and taxation and how to keep cultivators on there. And at what point does something become state land? At what point is it no longer state land? What's the boundary between state-owned land and privately held land? And what does that mean for the different incentive structures uh, involved in
0: animating economic activity? Mm-hmm. The Abbasids defined an imperial model of Islamic rule. Features of the Abbasid state would become part of future states for centuries to come. But one of the Abbasids' most important innovations would become not just a source of power, but also a threat to them and many subsequent dynasties. In response to challenges to their hegemony, the Abbasids introduced the practice of military slavery. Enslaved soldiers and even generals would form the backbone of the Abbasid military by the mid-9th century. The Caliph al-Mu'atassim would become so reliant on this form of military organization that it undermined his successors.
2: The Abbasid's ride to power on the backs of Khorasanis, people from Khorasan, and their descendants, who are known as the Abna'a right? The sons of the dynasty. It's these folks from Khorasan, the descendants as well, you know, the descendants of the folks who've been sent out to Mecca, who helped overthrow the Umayyads, who bring the Abbasids to power, and they claim then uh, a pretty large stake in the future of the Abbasid dynasty. They know, having come from outside, that the dynasty relies on them. Well, that for the dynasty is a dangerous thing to have a bunch basically of foreign warlords who who think that they ought to have a significant say in the governing of the empire. The first, one of the first things that the Abbasids do is murder the general who basically brings them in. Abu uh, Mus'l. He's invited to dinner and he does not get to stay for dessert. <laughs> in the long run, having the Khurasanis be the backbone of the Abbasid military is no less problematic, right? Within a number of decades, there are a number of prominent families who have occupied positions um, of authority such that they control governorships of distant provinces, the same families, likewise Sheriff in in Baghdad, and have all sorts of power consolidated within them such that it, it forms a real threat. So what is the solution to this? Well... At a moment in which uh, power is being fought over amongst the Abbasids themselves, as sometimes happens, there's not necessarily this idea that power should go from father to son directly, or father to eldest son, I should say. We have out on the frontiers the future Caliph, al Mutasim, who begins to uh, explore a somewhat novel solution to this problem of how to kind of expand the sources of of military power and the solution. And it's possible there were others who who explored this possibility before him, but none who did so with such alacrity or expanded it quite as much as he did is to source Turks, right? So we're talking about nomadic peoples from the steppes of Central Asia who effectively grow up in the saddle and are masters of the composite recurved bow. Folks who therefore have, horsemanship abilities, and archery skills, both of which are required in the warfare of the day, that exceed most around them, and which they use in, in kind of traditional raiding practices. But the solution here is, is to contract with slave traders to acquire young, but not too young, Turkic boys, who could then be educated and trained accordingly. Some of them might be older teenagers or what have you, and that these folks would then form regiments of, of, of Turkish slave soldiers. Now, why would this work? Well, these are not slaves perhaps in the sense that, you know, many students might be familiar with in, in, in the U.S. system or in you know, colonial North or South America. These are people who are ultimately given a tremendous amount of responsibility but also great rewards for their service. But because they have been removed from their home, Um, And from their society early on. Uh, They are encouraged to develop loyalty to their commanders and to their commanders' commanders. And at the same time, this works for those who have acquired them because they're alien. They have no local source of power. They have no clan or tribe or family that is going to interfere or intervene on their behalf. They will rise based on their ability. They will be rewarded for it. And if they fall, nobody will get in the way. That's at least how this should work in theory. So you've acquired now people who have all the skills you need, who are immensely loyal and are rewarded for it. And so when Multasim ultimately comes to power, he brings his slave soldiers with him. And ultimately, he and his successors will build and expand a whole garrison city outside of Baghdad, Samara, uh which will become home to these guys. This is in part because when you bring, when the slave soldiers are first brought to to Baghdad, the local population is a little bit uh, confused and frequently traumatized by these guys riding around their horses who don't speak their language and who run down a number of people, whether on purpose or by accident. And it is decided by all that this would work better if they were just kept out of the city and far away. Now, under Mutasim, at least, these guys... Prove their worth time and time again. They're loyal. They're incredibly effective on the battlefield. They're expensive. They're expensive to purchase. They're expensive to train. They're expensive to house. But they work pretty well. And they solve the problem of legitimacy, which is the Turkish slave soldier doesn't care necessarily about your family's background, about whether you have a right to rule or not. Not to say that their their children, if they have any, won't care. They are in many instances converted to Islam, but maybe only superficially. So all those kind of battles that concern the locals aren't of concern to them. In the end, though, this proves problematic because in a situation in which there are multiple claimants to the throne with equal legitimacy, and when ultimately the caliphs and their entourage are surrounded by their Turkish slave soldiers in samurai, ultimately it comes to be that their commanders realize that they and not the caliphs, are really in charge. And so, by the final decades of the ninth century, we have coups and counter-coups and counter-counter-coups, and one caliph after another being replaced. And by the end of the ninth century, much of the Abbasid Caliphate has effectively disintegrated into governorships already, which had been spun off years earlier into forms that were effectively autonomous. Once Uh, The caliphate is no longer securely in the hands of somebody able to really deploy his military power. These guys begin to look towards the caliph for legitimation, but little else. Even with that cautionary tale, even with that cautionary tale that relying on these slave soldiers ultimately displaces the caliphs and makes them effectively puppets of their own military commanders... Um, and they, later, Abbasid caliphs will claw back some power, but they'll never get it all back, and they'll never, you know, take control of the whole empire as their predecessors had. Even with that knowledge, every single successor state adopts the same institution. Every single one of them, at least it has been argued, approaches the same sort of legitimacy gap. Right? None of them are caliphs. None of them descended from the prophet, or at least few are. And in order to maintain any claims they might stake, they turn to to the institution of slave soldiers. Say, acquire Turks from the frontiers, um, raise and train them. Every single succeeding polity does that. When they can't get Turks, they get other people. They get Slavs, they get Greeks. So from Iberia to Central Asia, from the ninth century on, we will see the institution of slave soldiers. We will see it through to the Ottoman Empire and the Safavid empires as well. Every single one sees this as a solution to, acquire, uh, to the problem of how do you acquire and maintain loyal military forces.
0: In the year 861, muat son, the Caliph al-Mutawakkil, was killed by Turkish soldiers who apparently feared they might be eliminated by the caliph and his secretary, al-Fatih ibn Khak'an, himself the son of a Turkic general who had been raised alongside Mutawakkil as part of the palace elite. After this event, the Abbasid empire entered a period of turmoil. In fact, the 8th and 9th centuries of the Abbasids are typically associated with an Islamic golden age, but even during that time, Abbasid rule was constantly contested. For example, Harun al-Rashid, the most iconic historical figure of the Abbasid dynasty, presided over a period of prosperity, yet he also faced numerous internal challenges and had a major falling out with the Barmakids, a family of Persian bureaucratic elite advisors and governors who practically ran the empire at its height. Meanwhile, Harun al-Rashid's son, al-Ma'mun, took power after a civil war with his brother, el-Amin, and while he presided over a period of intellectual and cultural flourishing, he also courted serious controversy over his sympathies with the Ma'tazalites, a branch of theologians influenced by Aristotelian thought.
1: Always there was this strand of opposition and questioning to caliphal authority. And this came to a head, really, in the 3rd century of Islam, so we're talking about the ninth century of the Common Era, when the Caliph ma'mun in many ways a very enlightened and, and, and cultured and cultivated monarch, decided to impose a view on the Muslim population about the contentious but impossible to sort out argument about the createdness of the Quran. Now, I don't think there's, perhaps there's time to go into details about why this was an important issue, but what one of the things that was important was the caliph was attempting to decide on Muslim doctrine. And this provoked a huge amount of opposition. And it provoked opposition in the city of Baghdad amongst a group that are becoming more and more important at this time, the ulama, the learned people. And the ulama were learned, particularly in the field of Islamic law and the traditions, the hadith of Prophet Muhammad. And they set themselves up to counter and oppose this idea of the caliph as a lawmaker and say, no, you can't do that. The caliph has has no right to decide about Islamic law. It's we, the ulama, we the people who know what Prophet Muhammad said in these thousands and thousands of hadiths that are brought down to us. And the caliph's power to make decision is illegitimate. And in the end, they sort of won. And this was a very important moment in Islamic history because the caliph, the secular ruler, could no longer claim to be a lawmaker, could no longer claim to be an interpreter of Quran. And that is the beginning of the undermining, shall we say, of the status and power of the caliphate, because a ruler who can't make laws is only half a ruler.
0: Part of why we know so much about the Abbasid Caliphate is that it presided over a massive intellectual revolution in the Islamic world. The House of Wisdom, or Beit al-Hekma, was a fabled repository of learning that survived until the Mongols sacked Baghdad during the mid-13th century. At the center of early Abbasid intellectual developments was a large-scale effort to translate materials from the former Sasanian and Byzantine worlds, which contained classics of Greek learning. At first, the translation movement was spurred by the needs of the state. Here's Mariam Patton, one of our Ottoman History Podcast team members.
4: The Abbasids choose Baghdad as their capital, but there is no actual bureaucracy or government sort of in place in the in the traditional sense of the term. So the idea is is to create a bureaucratic structure which requires having learned bureaucrats and creating a body of knowledge, which up to now has is, is, is been in Greek, but they're aware of it, again, because of their neighbor, because of the fact that they neighbor the Byzantine, so they, they know that this body of knowledge is out there. And the translation movement kind of grows beyond that into something more than just sort of state officials requesting texts being translated, but also into a kind of opportunity for independent scholars to gain sort of prestige and patronage by present by themselves choosing to, te- to translate certain texts and then presenting them in the bid to get, you know, a job, possibly. On the one hand, yes, it's a translation movement, but in fact, hardly or none, none of their histories, their, their tragedies, or any of the poetic sort of literary arts, none of those are translated. But it's the sort of practical, mathematical, astronomical things that serve empire in a way or serve the state. Um, Alongside the translation movement, you get lots of new original texts. So it's not just A to B Greek to Arabic. It's also a whole cadre of original texts being written at the same time, sort of inspired by by the translation. And then the other reason it's kind of a misnomer to call it the Greco-Arabic translation movement is that it wasn't directly Greek into Arabic. Quite often it was Greek into Syriac, which then was translated into Arabic. And Syriac is another Semitic language, like Hebrew and Arabic, which is a dialect of, of Aramaic. And so that's interesting because it then raises the question, well, who's translating these, these documents? Who knows, who knows Syriac? So it's not just Muslim scholars who, who work for the Abbasids who are doing the translation. It's rather a very large variety of, of individuals, a large part of whom are Christian, from a variety of different um, churches and also Sabians, like Thabit ibn Kura. and So it's a very v- varied and diverse group of scholars who, who are translating texts for different kinds of patrons, but largely part of this sort of effort to create systematized knowledge in part to advance state interests. Hunayn ibn Ashaq is a, one of the Christian translators who is sort of seen as being one of the best ones, like his, his translations are better, and so I, I don't know that much about his... Is separate over, but he's famous for his work on optics, and sort of the eye, and those. That's an example of sort of an original, like original scholarly productions that aren't simply translations that are being produced at the same time. Um, but he's he's one of the most famous uh, translators, along with his son, and he's very interesting because he also writes about sort of how he translates, like the the philosophy, or the methodology.
0: The translation movement fueled an intellectual transformation that would serve as the basis of Arabic philosophy and sciences, and even change the way scholars interpreted Islamic law. In translation, scholars could read Plato and Aristotle and engage with the more recent movement of Neoplatonism, which had origins in the 3rd century CE and was highly influential on Christian scholars in Syria.
4: Neoplatonism is basically just New Platonism, as as the name implies. the areas where Plato and Aristotle diverge can basically be summarized in terms of their understanding about the structure of the cosmos, either being a single entity or two entities. So for Plato, the world is of two main entities, the the plane of ideas and the plane of the earth where we are now, which is somewhat, you know, inferior compared to this sort of higher realm of understanding, which is oftentimes seen as being esoteric or almost mystic. And Aristotle is far more about sort of the here and the now, what you see in front of you. He emphasizes sensory experience. He's like the original empiricist in that sense. So various scholars throughout the ages have tried to either synthesize them or try to argue why one is better than the other. So in, in the Islamic context in the East, what happens, what ends up happening is that while Aristotle forms the really strongest part of uh, philosophy about understanding the world, Platonic elements are added on and they often came from the Neoplatonists rather than writings of Plato himself. And so the basic gist of it is that they take Aristotle's word when discussing things about the, the natural sphere and the natural world, but then when the philosophers start talking about sort of loftier concepts, then maybe, or at least like the the structure of the cosmos beyond the moon, then Platonic concepts kind of creep in. And there are also really interesting moments in the intellectual history where one reason why they're able to Platonize Aristotle is because of confusion over Aristotle's writings, whether or not Aristotle actually wrote this text. So there's this famous incident of this text known as the Theology of Aristotle, which is written by Plotinus, a Neoplatonist. Um, But because of the name and confusion over what it actually represents, it gets attributed to Aristotle. Uh, you have later readers who say oh wow look aristotle can be reconciled with plato because look at this text where you know they they get along so interesting moments like that yeah
0: the intellectual transformation of the islamic world under the abbasids was also aided by a technological transformation paper university of toronto professor genie miller explains
5: uh, it's really in the middle of the ninth century that you first start to get books that are intended to get disseminated for a larger audience, like in the marketplace, by being copied verbatim. And that is largely because of the advent of
0: paper. Paper can be made from a variety of plant fibers, and in the medieval world was often made from rags and discarded cloths such as linen. The earliest paper production occurred in China, And during the Abbasid period, it would seem that paper entered the Abbasid empire through Central Asia. Baghdad was one of the first places outside of China to become a center of paper production. And this made books much cheaper to produce.
5: Basically, if you wanted to write something down, you had to either um, slaughter a herd of sheep to create enough parchment um, where you could really get a significant amount of text written down. Other writing materials were papyrus, which has sort of a limited geography where you can grow it. Um, So at one point, I think the caliphal government was commandeering all of the Egyptian papyrus because they could not otherwise uh, satisfy their administrative requirements. Um, So there was quite a shortage of writing materials actually. So uh, in that time before the advent of paper, probably for various reasons, not only for that reason. The way that scholars disseminated knowledge amongst each other was um, something that one scholar calls hyponemic. Um, That's Gregor Schiller. This is a combination of oral and written transmission. So every scholar would sort of memorize, but also have written notes to sort of supplement their memory and then they would lecture to transmit those fragments of knowledge and text to other scholars now this is vast amounts of text that are being transmitted here right So the interesting thing about it then is that every time they sort of conducted their lecture sequence again, they could be recombining this knowledge in different ways. The people who heard them could be recombining these text fragments and these different kinds of knowledge in different ways. And so you didn't have like what we think of as a book today, where there's like, if you look at like, I don't know, Moby Dick, we know what the first word is of that book. Like in every print edition, the fifth word should be the same word, right? That is not the way knowledge was being transmitted. So once paper came onto the scene, it became possible to copy people's private notes. There was just a lot more freedom for people to purchase written material in like bookshops and stuff like that. And so as a result, scholars actually began to write for that purpose. And so one of the first scholars to to do this was al-Jahiz, and he wrote very long compilations that he purposely intended to be sold in book markets. So that's quite different from the kind of compilatory materials that later became books because people wanted to preserve the amassed knowledge of a particular scholar like that they were lecturing from.
0: Jeannie Miller studies the Arabic literature of the Abbasid world, which in addition to being very vibrant, contained a new book culture that drew in wider audiences. Her work focuses in particular on a Basra-born scholar she just mentioned, known to history as El jahiz
5: If you're going to school, like going to high school in an Arab country today, and you think of some of your favorite authors from the classical era, usually Jahiz comes up as one of those. And that's because I think teachers love to assign excerpts from Jahez because there are so many funny stories that he includes. Um, a lot of what he wrote was very accessible. And he did that on purpose because he wanted to engage a larger group of people in the kinds of thought processes that he wanted to teach. You know, what a lot of people don't think about, though, when they're reading Jahiz, is that he actually saw himself primarily as a theologian, and was trying to sort of teach thought methods through the medium of these very wide-ranging compilatory works.
0: Al Jahiz belonged to that school of thought, the Ma'tazalah, favored by the Caliph al-Ma'mun, which pursued a rationalist interpretation of theology. And al jahiz enjoyed the patronage of prominent figures in Abbasid society. He was a prolific scholar who wrote on many topics. Dozens of his books survive to this day, and many of them are incredibly long and exhaustive studies. He was not the type to shy away from debate and polemics. At the core of al jahizs intellectual work were argumentation and rhetoric, in addition to a penchant for humor. al jahiz also loved to compile and classify. Many of his works are encyclopedic. Among the best remembered is his Book of Animals. al jahizs scholarly profile is all the more remarkable given his humble background outside of the Arab elite, who had enjoyed privileged status over the two centuries following the original Arab conquests. His ascent as a scholar was a testament to how the social hierarchies of the early Islamic world were changing during the Abbasid period.
5: So we know that al-Jahiz was a mola, which is someone from a family um, that does not have patrilineal genealogical descent from an Arab tribe, but rather who somewhere along the line, along that patrilineal line, somebody became a client of uh, someone who is a member of an Arab tribe. So this... Like, clientship is was a way that a lot of Muslim converts integrated themselves into the social categories of the Arab tribe system, and so there was a lot of Mawali <laughs> in the Abbasid Empire. And one of the things that made the Abbasid period very special is that it used to be under the Umayyads that the descendants of the people who, of the original tribesmen who were part of the Islamic conquests were on the government payroll, um, whether or not they were actually active military anymore. That pretty much came to an end uh, in the Abbasid period. As more and more people learned Arabic, as more and more people converted to Islam, um, as more and more people moved to Baghdad from very far-flung areas of the empire. Empire, it actually became very difficult sometimes to tell sort of who was who and what their background was. That sort of feeling of cultural mixture is, is one of the defining sort of features of the Abbasid Caliphate. That's where we start to get a sort of Islamicate culture that is not really Arab necessarily, and not always necessarily strictly Muslim either.
0: Al-Jah has lived in a world where tribal affiliation and genealogy mattered. But it also contained mechanisms for people outside the Arab tribes that carried out the original conquests to gain access to affiliation through clientage. The fact that he was descended from a maula or client of one such tribe is important for trying to imagine how Al-Jah has thought about integration into a scholarly community of Muslims. There were people from all over the world entering that community. And in many cases, that meant identifying with the dominant culture as much or even more than the history of one's own biological ancestors. This makes it difficult to interpret the scarce information we have about al-Jahaz's own background.
5: The earliest biography that we have of him is al-Khatib al-Baghdadi, who is 200 years later. So according to al-Khatib al-Baghdadi, al-Jahaz's sister's Grandson said that Al Jahiz's grandfather was black, using the word uh, Aswad. He doesn't talk about himself necessarily being part of that category. Also, the category of black is a very unclear category, I would say, at that time and place.
0: Miller cautions against trying to interpret Al Jahiz's race through the lens of the present. But Jahiz did end up writing some interesting things about race in his day, including a famous text called Fakhr Sudan, Al Al Bidan or The Boast of Blacks Over Whites.
5: So Jahez wrote an epistle called The Boasts of the Blacks Against the Whites. If you look into the epistle, it's pretty clear that he's literally just talking about color. It's not a very sort of strict ethnic category in any way. A lot of the epistle is his citation of various people who are boasting about their noble ancestors or what is great about black people. Some of these people are including in that category people from India, people from China, people, certainly people from East Africa called Zenj are included. Certainly people from Abyssinia called Habashi Habesh, are included, but also Copts, Nubians, you know, the, he includes certain Arab tribes that were seen to be darker skinned. Um, so it really is more about color than any sort of strict concept of race, I think. Whites, on the other hand, are uh, that he lists Slavs, Franks, people from Khorasan in Iran. Um, it's kind of a, again, it's sort of color-based and it's kind of a mixed bag. And he takes for granted that whites are some of the worst people, by which he means the Slavs and the Franks.
0: For al jahiz the act of argument itself was a worthy scholarly pursuit.
5: This text belongs to a genre that has a much wider scope. So there's a lot of different texts, not j- many of them by Jahiz, but not, I mean, many also by other authors from this time period that involve competitive rhetorical games. So it's like the dog versus the rooster or different kinds of flowers versus one another comparing the months of the year, right? This is sort of a rhetorical genre that people were very, very, um, that was very popular at the time. Uh, some of it certainly is related to um, the sort of intertribal competitive poetry slams that were going on um, in the Umayyad period and into the Abbasid period. So, like Jahiz growing up would have probably seen. Some of these going on, like Jarir and Farazdaq competed in Mirbad, which is one of the um, a a marketplace in Basra that Jahiz frequented in his youth. And these sort of tribal competition poems are really, really aggressive and dirty, often like misogynistic and just full of all the worst slurs that were available. And so some of that context actually comes up in Jahiz's. Epistle on the boasts of blacks over whites, because he's citing poetry written by black people after they got insulted for being black in the context of some of those tribal competitive poetry sparring. So, like Jerir is one of these famous insult poets. He insulted one poet, Haikotan, in a brief sort of one line aside for his dark color of his skin. Haikotan went home and composed a very long boast poem about all the different dark-skinned people that he can think of. And uh, Jahiz actually cites that entire poem with full commentary, where he expands on the history of all the people that are mentioned in the poem. So it's actually quite useful. It's sort of like a digest of a lot of the great culture heroes that turn out to have been considered to be black, according to these uh, early Abbasids.
0: The boast of the blacks over the whites was not the only work that al has wrote on the subject of race. He also wrote an epistle about Turks, another group that was on the outside of the Abbasid elite. That work, entitled The Merits of the Turks, spoke to how ideas about inclusion in the Islamic community were shifting.
5: Al-Jahiz apparently first wrote that epistle under, in the, under the reign of al-Mu'tasim, and he says he did not deliver it to, to al-Mu'tasim for his reward for various reasons. Um, he doesn't want to specify what those reasons were, so we remain in the dark on that point. But he did rededicate it to al-Fatih ibn Hakan later, who um, was a Turkish advisor to the caliph uh, under al-Mutawakkil, and was extremely powerful and prominent, and became uh, al-Jahiz's best patron after the death of some of his other patrons. So The content of the main part of the epistle is very similar to what we find in the Boasts of the Blacks Over Whites. It's a lot of things that have been said about Turks that are good and the names of many wonderful Turkish people in history. And it's like a sort of compilation. He says, um, of course he wrote this epistle in response to a request for the epistle from Al-Fat bin Khakan, which is standard for the genre, but he gives a lot of context for Al-Fat's request. So apparently Al-Fat was in a like social gathering with a number of really high-ranking military men, and there was one particularly extremely annoying, insistent, loud person in the group who is not named, but who makes these very overstated proclamations that El Fatah finds really offensive. So this guy says, oh, it's a miracle that the Abbasid army can function at all because it's composed of these different ethnicities that are just so um, far apart from each other and so different that it's just unbelievable, right? El Fatah, of course, bears a lot of responsibility for the functioning of the Abbasid army, which in fact was extremely diverse. Um, the military was organized largely according to these uh, divisions that were largely ethnic, and so it was a touchy subject for Al-Fatah. So he responds to this uh, uh, this person, this annoying person, by saying, "No, no, no! Like we're more similar than you think." You know, he's trying to promote harmony. He's talking about like you know we share a lot of things in common. Like there's no reason why we can't have a unified military and all get along. Then the other guy starts praising all the ethnicities and leaves out the Turks. Al-Fat doesn't happen to have on hand a lot of information to give him in defense of the Turks and just leaves this gathering feeling really angry at what has transpired. So Al-Jahiz's job here is to give him all the arguments that he could have used in that context and to publish this and widely disseminate it so that al in the end can get the last word, proving that all of the different peoples making up the Abbasid Empire and and especially the Abbasid Imperial Army, are harmonious and similar to one another, and that the Turks especially should not be left out of that grand harmony. El-Fatih uh, bin Khakan, when he, in his request for the epistle, is writing to al Jahiz, he brings up the example of Ismail, as a sort of prototypical example of someone like a Mawla, like someone who was not an Arab, and then his descendants came to be an integral part of the Arab tribal system. So the backstory to that is Ismail or Ishmael is uh, sort of left in in his mother, were left in uh, Mecca by Ibrahim or Abraham, so he originally was not from the Arabian Peninsula, but they say that he then became the progenitor of the Adnan tribe which is sort of the Arabs are divided into Adnan and Qahtan, right? So so Qahtan then by this logic are the only ones that are originally Arab. This is like a very pro Qahtan Abbasid era logic, of course. And Adnan is ultimately, according to patrilineal descent, comes from Ismail, who is not originally Arab. But of course, everybody knows that Adnan is is the whole tribe of Adnan are are true Arabs, like that was uh, sort of taken for granted in Abbasid times. So Al-Fat asks, how could Ismail be the progenitor of this really large, important Arab tribe when he had no Arab parents? So Al-Fat's answer is basically that over time, because of intermarriage, his descendants came to be Arabs. They spoke Arabic, they took on Arab customs and cultures and became indistinguishable from the peoples that they came to live among. Al-Jahiz kind of gives a different story, and it seems like he's much less interested in, actually, in genetics, and much more interested in language. This mirrors uh, some of the really dominant trends that we see culturally in the Abbasid period, where full command of the Arabic language is now coming to be Maybe more important for social advancement than any kind of genealogical status. That was, of course, very terrifying to some people, and there was a lot of discussion about this topic. Jahiz then, the way that he makes this argument is he says that Ismail, his tongue was made miraculously eloquent with perfect Arabic. And this fact that he could speak Arabic so perfectly, that's sort of the start of a chain reaction um, that involves his character. Um, He says that God stripped him, uh, stripped his nature of the natures of foreigners and transferred to his body those atoms, arranging them to create this particular arrangement and molding him according to this shape. So it's like from language, language then even comes to affect biology, which then is different for actually from genealogy or descent. So it's a really, really strong defense of the Arab, Arabic-ness of the Mowali.
0: Whatever the story of Al-Jahaz's biography, his logic of argumentation about how Turks fit into the Islamic body politic seems to have been one that would have been equally applicable to his own position as the descendant of a non-prestigious lineage who had gained access to the higher echelons of Abbasid society through his mastery of Arabic language, logic, and rhetoric. Al-Jahiz excelled at the art of rhetoric, but his musings on race and ethnicity in the Abbasid empire were not merely rhetorical. They spoke to profound social changes. We've already discussed how military slavery brought the Turkic communities of Central Asia into the Islamic world and foreshadowed how the creation of a new military class would transform the politics of Islamic polities in the centuries to come. Meanwhile, in al-Jahaz's home region of southern Iraq, a different form of slavery sits at the center of the narrative of what was one of the largest and most sustained regional rebellions faced by any Islamic polity to that date, the Zenj Rebellion which began in 869 and lasted into the 880s. Led by an enigmatic figure known as Ali bin Muhammad, the Zenj Rebellion brought together a diverse mix of people in the Basra region, most of whom were excluded from the upper echelons of power in Abbasid society. There are divergent but overlapping interpretations of the Zenj Rebellion. It was only one of many rebellions faced by the Abbasids, but is attested in the Arabic sources of the period as among the bloodiest. If the sources are not exaggerating, hundreds of thousands of people died. Scholars agree that the people marked as Zenj in the rebellion are understood to be black in some sense, Zenj being the name for the east coast of Africa in Arabic. But if indeed the people at the heart of the Zenj rebellion hailed from that place, and whether, as the conventional interpretation holds, they were primarily enslaved people, have been the subject of debate and ambiguity due to the nature of the sources. What is clear is that the Zenj were marked as different in racial and or class terms, and at the very least, the Zenj Rebellion was a rebellion against imperial authority in southern Iraq that brought a number of local elements into its ranks, including enslaved people and their descendants. If you're following along in my Making of the Islamic World course at UVA, we'll be discussing a section of Ataburi's history of the prophets and kings dealing with the Zenj Rebellion. There's a link to a translation of a tabari on the page for this podcast on the Ottoman History Podcast website. I also have a short list of secondary readings on the subject there. Abd sharifs article from 2018 is especially worth a read. Sharif ultimately concludes that the Zen's Rebellion was a pivotal moment in the transformation of the practice of slavery in the Islamic world. After the Zen's Rebellion, large-scale agricultural slavery in the Islamic world seems to have been rare over many subsequent centuries. The Abbasid state ultimately weathered the crisis of the late 9th century. But those tumultuous events marked the end of the Abbasid Caliphate as a hegemonic imperial entity.
1: The problems of the uh, Abbasids were increased because of the economic problems, and the particular economic problems in Iraq, which meant that the uh, dynasty that was able to employ the most powerful army in the world, probably, Uh, in the 8th century, by the beginning of the 10th century was uh, faced by a small, usually mutinous, and almost totally ineffective uh, military force. And the caliphate breaks up in the 10th century. But the breakup of the caliphate is a complicated business. It's partly the misfortunes of the Abbasids, but it's partly something else that's going on that's very important. And that is the conversion of populations around the Middle East to Islam. We must remember that there is a big difference between conquest, which is the Arab Muslim military conquest of the 7th century and the beginning of the 8th, and conversion of the majority of the population of these areas to Islam. The first is a quick and violent process. The second is a much longer process, the conversion of people, the majority to Islam, is a longer process, possibly taking five centuries to reach a numerical majority even in the Middle East. And it's almost entirely peaceful. There are very few uh, records of, of, of forcible conversion to Islam. But as more and more people in different areas became Muslims, in a curious way, their allegiance to the caliphs in Baghdad weakened. You get Muslims in Egypt Muslims in northeastern Iran, in around Bukhara and Samarkand, and all the other, who are devout Muslims, but their loyalties lie to their region. They are Iranian Muslims or Khurasani Muslims from northeast Iran. Uh, they are Egyptian Muslims primarily, and their connections—they never go to, they never see a caliph. Their connections with the central government in Baghdad are extremely tenuous and by and by local rulers local Muslim rulers in all cases come and take over the power that the Abbasids had previously had. So in a paradoxical way the breakup of the Abbasid Caliphate which happens in the 10th century uh, which led to the as well the political disunity of Islam was a sign, a symptom, a consequence in fact of the success of Islam in proselytizing and spreading amongst all sorts of varieties of populations. This is one of the, I mean, I think this is a fundamental to understand this, if we are looking at the long-term question of why the Caliphate was never, so to speak, put back together again. It's because it, the breakup of the Caliphate is not just something that happened by accident because rulers were useless, but it was a consequence of long-term um, social, economic, and above all, religious change.
0: The Abbasids would remain as players on the map of the Islamic world all the way up until the fall of Baghdad to the Mongols during the mid-13th century. But before we get to that, there's a lot more Islamic history to cover. Because by the 10th century, the Islamic world was multipolar. In the next installment, we're going to zoom in on the Persianate world, what we'll call Rumi's world, and learn how this margin of the Umayyad and Abbasid caliphates became a center of the Islamic world in its own right. We'll also explore the other corner of the Islamic world in southern Europe and North Africa, where the Umayyads, followed by a bunch of other Islamic dynasties, maintained a presence in the Iberian Peninsula up until the end of the 15th century. Then we'll move to Egypt, which beginning with the Fatimid Caliphs of the 10th century, rivals to the Abbasid claim, would comprise its own political center of the Islamic world until the Ottoman conquest of the 16th century. And through these three episodes centered on the Persianate world, Andalusia, and Egypt respectively, will explore the different overlapping regional histories that make up the history of the Islamic world writ large. And will also explore the increased global connections across North Africa and Asia, as well as in the Mediterranean Sea and the Indian Ocean, that the histories of these regions attest to. I'm Chris Grayton. Thanks for listening to this episode, and join us next time in this Ottoman History Podcast series entitled The Making of the Islamic World. Take care, everybody.